Podcastle, episode 213, for June 19th, 2012. Wayne, by Elizabeth Bear. Rated R for violence, sex, language. I'm probably leaving something else out, too. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Anna Schwind. And because Dave is out flensing a sperm whale, I'm your host. If you and I were to have a conversation about books, and if during that conversation you were to recommend a book to me, and if you did that with the words, it's an alternate history, then I would immediately lie to you. I would say, I don't like alternate history. This would be a self-defense mechanism, really, because my Desiderata is over 100 books, and life is short. I'd like it if you didn't add to the long list that already takes an extremely optimistic view of my free time. But it is only half a lie. Generally, I do not like alternate history, because it usually treats heavily into subjects I find hopelessly boring. Battles and fame. I dislike alternate history that takes a well-known, and usually beloved, figure and adds a twist of circumstance, and I have less than zero interest in tactical layouts. It's what would have happened to Hadrian's Wall if the Roman legions had mustard gas, you might say, and I would have already started composing a grocery list in my mind. On the other hand, it is absolutely true that two of my favorite books are alternate history. And it's also true that Podcastle has run a fair number of stories which could be classed fairly as alternate history. I thought they were good stories worth sharing with all of you. And today is no exception. I bring you Wayne by Elizabeth Bear, set in the world of New Amsterdam, where the American Revolution has not yet happened, although the story is set in the 1890s. France and England edge towards war. The Aztec Empire is a vibrant player in the balance of power between the nations. The focus of today's story will not be on any given battle, but on whether one murder, if unsolved by Detective Crown Investigator Abby Irene, will lead to devastating war for the world and heartbreak for herself. Oh, and there's magic. So you can feel at ease that we're in the right genre with today's offering. Elizabeth Bear was born on the same day as Frodo and Bilbo Baggins, but in a different year. She lives in southern New England with a giant, ridiculous dog and a cat who is an internet celebrity. She is the winner of two Hugos and a Sturgeon Award, among others. Her new novel, Range of Ghosts, is out now from Tor and is on my list of books to read, along with 99 others. You may wish to know that it's set in the same universe as Podcastle 96, Love Among the Talus. The story is read for us today by the combo of Marguerite Kenner and our old friend, Alistair Stewart. Of course, I need tell you no more about Alistair. But Marguerite is a regular narrator at Cast of Wonders, the YA fiction podcast by Graham Dunlop and Barry Northern. Her blog is at projectvalkyrie.wordpress.com or marguerite.kenner.com. And now, check your jewelry and your gloves 
because we're going to a party in a land that might have been. Wayne by Elizabeth Bear Garrett lowered her gaze from the beaten copper diameter of a rising moon to regard the soft-eyed wampir beside her. The dark fabric of his sleeve lay smooth under her fingertips. A breeze still tasting of winter ruffled the forensic sorcerer's carefully arranged hair and shifted the jewels in her earlobes. Thank you for coming, Sebastian. On the contrary, Abby Irene. The great detective murmured through lips that barely moved. What man could refuse your company of an evening? A lifted eyebrow made the double entendre express. The moonlight lay like a rush of blood across his cheeks, making Don Sebastian de Uloa look almost alive. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium? Perhaps in my youth. To a connoisseur, value increases with time. She permitted herself an unladylike snort. Sebastian waited until it was plain she wouldn't answer. In any case, I am flattered by the invitation, although I fear we must be home by dawn. From what I hear of Her Grace's parties, we will miss the best part. Shall we go inside? I suppose we must. The mayor will be here. Oh, simply everyone will be here, my dear. On all sides of the issue. Come to fall on the prince, or to spit on his back. Sebastian handed her up the sweeping front steps of the Duke of New Amsterdam's palatial residence, and she presented her invitation to the butler. Detective Crown Inspector Abigail Irene Garrett and Don Sebastien de Ulloa. Be welcome in my master's house. Lady Abigail Irene will do tonight, Seamus, Garrett replied with a formal smile. Unless you plan to host a murder. Oh, no. But Garrett was already tugging Sebastian over the threshold. She might stumble or bolt if she delayed, so instead she forged ahead to the ballroom. She knew the way. Sebastian chuckled and hurried to keep up. <laughs> what a time for a ball, he said into her ear. She felt the coolness of what passed for his breath. The eve of war seems to you a strange time to celebrate? The wampir smiled sideways at the dryness of her tone, leaning close enough that she could smell his skin like dead leaves in autumn. Exiles must celebrate the way they may. Shaking her head slightly, closing her eyes in rue, Abigail Irene Garrett entered her rival's den. Jacqueline, the Duchess of New Amsterdam, was renowned for her velvet soirees, for fantasies and falderals, for balls and banquets. Renowned for making the most of whatever society the New World had to offer, and making it her own. She was the wife of the man Garrett loved. You're flushing, Sebastian whispered into her hair. You need champagne, I think. He led her across to the ballroom and fetched a glass, collecting another that he retained untouched. The guest of honor isn't here yet. She let her hand drop from his arm and turned to observe the room, raising the flute to lips incarnadined with paint. Ah, yes. Sebastian cocked his head to the side, listening. His Highness Prince Henry of Britain, brother and heir to King Philip, and favorite emissary on his tour of the Americas, at least once a decade, whether they need to or not. The dirigible arrived from Tenochtitlan yesterday. I'm surprised you didn't come to view the landing. It was spectacular. The colonies didn't see much airship travel, even in the dawning years of the 20th century. 
Peter Elliot, the Lord Mayor of New Amsterdam, had been there with his wife and her French gown and her diamonds, every artifact of dress a political statement in these days of near-open warfare between the Empire and the French. Mohawk sorcerers might have been blamed for the massacre at St. Johnsbury in the Green Mountains, but Garrett knew that the native warriors must be supplied with modern weapons out of Quebec. The mayor, she suspected, would cheerfully turn to the French if it meant home rule for the colonies. In the balmy afternoon sun, Abby Irene, I believed you thought more highly of me. He took the empty glass from her hand and replaced it with his own. Lightly, so quickly she didn't think anyone in the room would have noticed, he brushed a fingertip across the scarlet sorcerer's tattoo over her breastbone, just visible in the décollage of her gown. Daring for an older woman, but Garrett believed in getting away with whatever she could. There. A much more becoming flush, I think. You're upset for your duke, senora? The light laughter sounded forced even to her. <laughs> it's not the duke, Sebastian. And you know I never married. Senorita. He awarded her the point with a smile. Or the duchess, either. She sighed. <sighs> it's the prince. Abigail, Irene, you do impress. Long over, she replied. I came to America. I wondered why. Does Richard know? She finished Sebastian's champagne. Duke Richard? The lightest possible emphasis. I rather imagine he wouldn't have let his wife invite me if he did. He has an eye for propriety, our Duke. Shall we dance? Unless you care for another glass of champagne. A kiss of irony as he lifted the glass from her fingers and set it aside. She felt eyes upon her as she straightened a hothouse rose in his buttonhole. The damasked petals felt like silk. She imagined they matched the flush marking her cheeks. I'm giddy enough, she said, and glanced up, expecting Richard's gaze pale under bark-brown curls or a fish-eyed glare from Peter Elliot. Instead, dark eyes glittered in a sailor's deep-lined squint as Henry, Prince of England, looked back at her and offered up a slow, deep, self-possessed smile. He wore a goatee now, she observed, even as her breath jammed in her throat and tore, though his curls were still as black as Japanese lacquer. He stared at her over the shoulder of her lover, Duke Richard, who bent close to whisper in his ear. The prince laid tapered fingers on the duke's shoulder, shook his head once gently to end the conversation, and came down the steps. A cool breeze from some open window brushed Garrett's cheek. Excuse me. Garrett turned to whisper to Sebastian, but the wampir had already slipped away. She smelled citrus and ambergris and bit the inside of her cheek until her eyes stopped stinging. It was only a moment, but by the time she looked forward again, Henry of England was bowing over her hand. She would have thought herself numb enough to feel nothing, but his fingers tickled her skin through Kid. She almost closed her eyes. Your Highness. Abby Irene. He answered, and now she felt the mayor's eyes searing the nape of her neck, felt Richard's and Jacqueline's gazes on her face like hands raised to her cheek in question. The new world has been kind to you. Intermittently. Champagne, your highness? I think I had better not. The smile carved deeper furrows beside his eyes. A green jewel dripped rakishly from his left earlobe. I recognize your escort, by the way. Do you know... It's a well-kept secret, but yes. Ah. He stared at her throat. She was glad she'd worn the low-cut gown and suffered her hair to be piled up tall. The small white scars weren't on her neck. 
Sebastian was considerate. She smiled through the numbness. He's a friend. How's your wife? Pregnant again. May I call on you in private tomorrow, Crown Investigator? The title drew her back. Henry never said anything he didn't mean to carry several meanings. This is official. Highness, could I deny you? Would I, if this were a personal visit? She didn't know the answer, even now. The Atlantic, it seemed, hadn't been as wide as she had thought. Anon, then. A quick bow and he was gone, leaving Garrett to hide her urge to stand and stare after the princess retreating back like a terrified doe. She turned in time to catch the Lord Mayor's eye still on her, his lanky, red-haired wife posed beside him in Martin and gold and emeralds. The fabric falling back from her fashionably pale hand was a royal blue so dark it was almost violet, and Garrett wished she'd had a wine glass to raise in a silent, mocking toast. Instead, she twined her fingers in the jade moiré silk of her skirts and let her steps carry her towards the Elliots, Peter and Cecilia. A blonde head moved through the crowd, Duchess Jacqueline trying to intercept her, but Richard's wife would not be quick enough. Cecilia had evaporated by the time Garrett reached her goal, but she succeeded in catching up with the Lord Mayor. She reached past him to liberate a canapé from the refreshment table. This must be quite uncomfortable for you. An investigator? His expression gave her to understand he had no idea what she may be insinuating. She licked a crumb free of her lip varnish. A party in His Highness's honor. I'm surprised you found it appropriate to attend, given your politics. Because a man is loyal to the needs of his own home, over the needs of a distant emperor does not mean that that man doesn't wish the opportunity to discuss manners discreetly and in a mannerly fashion. Or perhaps I'm just here to flirt with the lovely Duchess. Elliot smiled his fishy smile, and Garrett winced as she swallowed the second bite of canapé. Creamy goat cheese tasted like crumbled lard and ash, but she managed with dignity. She's lovely enough to warrant it. Elliot leaned forward. I had no idea you were so intimate with the crown. She let herself laugh. She had practice. <laughs> it's my job to uphold the crown and the law. Even when the crown is above the law? Parliament would disagree with that contention, Lord Mayor. The Duchess came up beside them at that moment, and Garrett saw Elliot smile thankfully. Interesting that his hatred for Richard doesn't extend to Richard's wife. Garrett excused herself, refusing to squirm under Jacqueline's raised eyebrow, and went looking for the Duke through the gentle swirl of music drifting across the floor. A compact, strong-shouldered man in evening clothes intervened. She studied him without seeming to, as was her habit, and he bowed and handed her a bit of parchment sealed in violet. Compliments of His Highness. He had an aquiline, pockmarked face and grass-green eyes, strange in mahogany skin, but matching the barrel in his cravat pin. She took the note, imagining the crisp oiliness it would have on her flesh. Gloved fingers brushed hers. You are as lovely as your reputation, Lady Abigail. Please, she said, feeling something, a chain, shift inside the packet as she touched the corner to her lip. Abigail Irene, may I know your name, sir? The smile rearranged his face under the terrible scars. Nasa Hall Cottle. Michelle Nasa Hall Cottle. Charmed. Aztec, are you an ambassador from the Emperor? I am. His accent was slight and cultured. Five years in the court of King Philip. This has been my first chance to visit my home, however, and my first time in your fair city. Very lovely by moonlight. 
I saw it rise, she said. Gorgeous indeed, nearly full. On the waning side. His smile gentled the correction. My father's people say the shapes on its face make the outline of a rabbit, but my mother told me it was an old man. What do your new Amsterdam people see? I'm from London. She changed the subject. You have very charming eyes. I've never met an Aztec before. I thought you would have eyes as dark as a mohawk. My mother was white. A trace of coolness in there? It's why I survived the smallpox and why I was sent to England when a diplomat was needed. It is no doubt to His Highness's eternal benefit that you did. She shook the packet again, lightly, to hear it rustle. Were there instructions with this? He only asked me to deliver it, my lady. And he bowed slightly and turned away. Garrett took a half-step after him, squinting as her skirts belled forward and then settled, swaying about her hips. She tilted the parchment once more, again felt some weight slide within it. A note? Something I need to open now? Or is it best kept for home? She raised her chin to search for Richard and saw him in wary conversation with the Lord Mayor. And where has Sebastian gotten off to? That breeze touched her face again, and she turned to seek its source. Bell's draperies revealed some passageway beyond them, and Garrett chose to investigate. Rather than a window, the draperies concealed a doorway to a tiny balcony just large enough for two. It was unoccupied, and Garrett pushed weighty silk velvet aside and stepped into pale marble gleaming blue in the moonlight. She drew her right glove off and draped it over her arm before lifting the seal on the packet with her fingernail. Night wind scarfed her skirts and petticoats around her thighs. She tilted the packet and the contents slid and dropped. A gold chain, fine as a breath of wind, fell across her hand. She closed her fingers quickly before the swinging weight of the pendant could drag it loose and raised it to the light. A dark stone shaped like a tear swayed in the shaft of moonlight. Henry... There was writing inside the parchment. She slipped the jewel into the cuff of her glove, forgetting to replace the other one, and folded the letter open. For fondest remembrance, it said, and was unsigned. A peace offering, then, and not a deeper gesture. A breath she had not known she was holding hissed between her teeth. The perfume of forsythia and daffodils filled her throat, dizzying. She clutched the rail, not knowing if what she felt was grief or gratitude, and didn't notice until she opened her eyes again that her glove had slid down her wrist and dropped over the railing. Bother. Garrett tucked the note into her remaining glove, collected her wits, picked up her skirts, and, with another glance around the ballroom showed no trace of Sebastian, began her descent into the gardens to retrieve it. She was halfway down the sweeping staircase when she heard the scream. DCI Garrett was something of an expert on screams, she placed this one as female, aristocratic, and as the discoverer rather than a victim of an atrocity. She turned on the stair, somehow managing her gown, and sprinted back up as fast as she could run. Cecilia Elliott lay across the striped silk divan in the ladies' lounge with her head pillowed on the scrolled mahogany arm, pale and empty in a way that made Garrett think of a discarded stocking, a torn discarded stocking, ripped from heel to hem. For Elliot's chest was torn open, her throat slashed from ear to ear, and her royal blue gown as spotless and dry as the silk of the couch. Jacqueline stood beside her, trembling, pale hands clutched white-knuckled in front of her mouth. The little room smelled of cloved oranges, lavender, and face powder. Garrett almost gagged. 
She kicked a vanity bench in front of the door to hold it open and laid her ungloved hand on the Duchess's arm. Your Grace, come away. Jacqueline looked at her, but Garrett didn't think the woman saw her. Come away. She heard running footsteps. Servants, the Aztec ambassador, the Lord Mayor, and, God bless, the Duke. Richard! Garrett stopped her cry just in time as Sebastian came up the stairs four at a time. Garrett bent her attention to Jacqueline. Duke Richard, your lady needs help. Gently but firmly, she placed Jacqueline into his care and focused on Nahawakadal. The mayor, she said, and Nahawakadal turned to intercept the man before he could see his wife in such disarray. Garrett turned back to the body crouching beside it. She raised her hands before her as if drawing in a net, but she did not touch. Don Sebastian. She didn't need to look up to know when he knelt at her side. Crown investigator. Her title now, and his voice rose cool and professional over the sound of a woman sobbing. Detective, what do you notice about the scene? She saw the slight smile quirk the corners of his mouth, heard the low resonance of Nahawakadal's voice as he led Peter Elliot away. Jacqueline had recovered herself and was speaking to Richard in a voice that carried soft, urgent command. The Wampir's gaze swept the bloodless body, the terrible wounds. A thoughtful pause, and then... Her jewels are gone. Garrett nodded and waited, knowing there would be more. And there are no marks on her arms or hands. Also, the blood is missing. Richard's voice interrupted them as he leaned between their close-bent heads. His words stopped Garrett's heartbeat in her throat. So is the prince. The burgeoning moon had long drifted into slumber. The sun was well risen, and Sebastian had fled the morning hours before by the time that Abigail Irene, exhausted, managed to return to her townhouse. Her servant Mary snored in the chair by the door and did not awaken at Garrett's key in the lock. Mary wore yesterday's apron, and her wiry coils of hair had frizzled free of her bun. Garrett was reaching out a hand to shake Mary awake when she realized that her dust-mop terrier, Mike, was nowhere in evidence. A reflexive check of her wards told her no one had entered the house invited, but revealed a presence upstairs. Garrett's carpet bag lay in the front hall closet beside her umbrella, but her wand was in her boot, and from there quickly in her hand. Without waking Mary, she first checked the lower level and then crept up the stairs to her bedroom door. She was about to turn the smooth, hard doorknob stealthily when the scent of oranges and musk tickled her memory. She opened the door. Her bedroom drapes were drawn to muffle any sunlight, and Mike came bounding at her from the corner by the fire where she kept two leather-covered chairs. She scooped the patchwork dog up and held him tight to her breast, unmindful of the green silk of her gown. "'Your Highness,' Garrett said into the darkened room, "'we've been tearing the city apart.' Henry, whatever possessed you? I imagined you would think your vampire awaited you. The tall, black-haired prince came out of the shadows towards her, and she saw that he had slept, if at all, in snatches. The darkness under his eyes lay as hollow and black as that rimming her own. I recognized your cologne. She shut the door behind her and threw the bolt. Henry. I know. He closed the space between them. She turned away and laid her wand on the French-waxed, half-round table by the wall, still holding Mike close. The wallpaper in her bedroom had a narrow silver stripe and subtle traceries of wisteria. She studied it as he spoke. I vanished. New Amsterdam is in an uproar. I had a reason. Let me see your hands. Pardon? She set Mike down by her feet. 
He gambled around her ankles for a moment, and then went to sniff the gleaming shoes of his long-absent friend, the prince. Let me see your hands, Henry. Wordlessly, he held them out to her, and she took them in her own. Her left one clad in kidskin, the right one bare. She'd forgotten her glove after all. Henry had bourbon on his breath, not much, a trace from the decanter on her washstand, and as she examined his manicured nails, he leaned close as if to breathe the perfume from her hair. How have you been, Abby Irene? Really? His hands were clean, undamaged. She let them fall. Mike whined by her ankle, and Henry crouched to tussle his fur like brown and cream milkweed fluff across those capable fingers. A breeze stirred the draperies, and a shaft of morning sunlight glinted on the pirate gemstone in the prince's ear. I've been well, she said. She took two steps back and sat down on the edge of her bed, patchwork counterpane dimpling where her hands clenched. Well enough, I... I like the earring. A royal gift from our Aztec friends. Philip had a fit. Same eyes, same smile. The creases a little deeper. Philip will put up with it unless he gets a son. A low chuckle trickled out of his mouth. <laughs> he will at that. He's had no luck yet. Fortunately, I have three. The sorcerer midwife tells Elaine it will be a daughter at last this time. Your wife must be pleased. She made herself stop twisting the counterpane before it tore. Why did you leave the ball? I was told my life was in danger, and... He stood, boots silent on her thick, layered carpets, as you measured and remeasured a path from bed to wall. And? I was told my life was in danger, and not mine alone, if I stayed. This was the safest place I could think of. I've not been in New Amsterdam before. It twisted her strings to think he would come to her for protection, after everything. After she had come to America when his mother, the Iron Queen, died and he became heir, when their relationship became a potential embarrassment. She was a crown investigator beholden only to the crown. She had gone to King Philip without telling Henry. She had gone without saying goodbye. Not your danger alone if you left, either. He stopped mid-stride, turned from his pacing, fixed her on a look. What do you mean? The Lord Mayor's wife is dead. Garrett woke Mary and sent her for Richard's carriage, knowing the Duke's men would recognize the Crown Investigator's housekeeper and do as she bid. She put Henry to bed in a guest room and amused him to get what rest he could and cast a minor working over herself to ensure wakefulness. She didn't remember the necklace until she drew hot water and began to undress. When she dropped her one remaining glove on her vanity, a golden chain slipped from the pale kid like a serpent from its den. The stone clinked on marble, and when she picked it up and held it to the light, it glittered green, the twin of the one in Henry's ear. She lifted the long chain over her head and let the stone hang against the crimson sigil between her breasts while she bathed. She was dressed again, decent, in a high-necked blue-gray linen gown, by the time Mary returned perched beside the coachman on the bench of Richard's carriage, and with Richard inside. Garrett waited for the Duke inside her door. The Prince? He asked before he even had his hat off. Asleep, she answered. Richard bent to kiss her, and she turned her face away so that his lips brushed her cheek. She gazed up the stairs. He felt unwell. I imagine. <laughs> and you? She shrugged and hung his hat. Concerned? How is Elliot bearing up? Badly. He insists on the arrest of the prince. Garrett swallowed and staggered. 
Richard caught her arm before she could fall over the hem of her dress. The Henry? Yes. But Richard led her to a chair. There was a similar crime in London, six months gone, just before the airship departed for Tenochtitlan. The woman killed was a favourite of his highness. It's rumoured, anyway. Garrett was pleased that she didn't flinch. What would the prince want was Cecilia's emeralds, Richard. The duke seated her and released his grip on her arm. Gently, he smoothed the disarrayed blonde strand back from her eyes. Misdirection? It's easily explained away. Given the prince's disappearance just before the murder, when the guests were accounted for and questioned, telegrams have been sent. Parliament approves the action. I am not in the pay of Parliament, Garrett said quietly. And neither are you, Your Grace. What does His Majesty say? His Majesty is silent, Richard replied, bending his head low over hers. But in the absence of a better suspect. I can offer one, Richard. Garrett's head turned as did the Duke's. Henry stood at the foot of the stair, his hair combed and the shadows under his eyes somewhat lightened. Your Highness! She hastened to her feet, Richard's hand still resting on her shoulder. Sit, happy Irene. The prince said kindly, and Garrett heard Richard's breath stop short, felt his fingers clench on her arm. I can see you are unwell. She glanced at the duke, but he would not look at her. His forehead was white. She imagined his flesh must feel as cold as if all the blood in his body had run down into his boots. And now you know, as you've often asked me, why I left London, my love. She obeyed her prince and sat. Another suspect, your highness? Henry nodded and crossed the intricately tiled entryway to stand before them. Richard drew his hand off Garrett's arm. Forgive me for eavesdropping. I overheard what you said, Richard, about the similarities to the murder in London. I was not even in London at the time. I had the details from a friend. Richard nodded. His throat worked, but he did not speak. Garrett felt a strange tautness in the skin of her face, as if stretched towards a shout. No, Henry, no. One of the guests at your ball, New Amsterdam, had both motive and opportunity for the crime. The Spaniard, de Ulloa. It was my contention that the crime in London was the work of an unclean beast. And here we find another such crime and another such creature in proximity. The coincidences are nerving. Beast, the great detective. Richard glanced down at Garrett, a knife line drawn between his eyes. DCI? She closed her hand on the carved wood of the chair and stood, forcing herself to steadiness. She raised her eyes to the Duke's and made her voice strong. Sebastian's a vampire, Richard. That's what his highness is so gently insinuating. She smiled bloodlessly at the prince, the jewel burning between her breasts like a star. I suppose we can place both of them in protective custody, just until we get things sorted out. We'll have to wait until nightfall to collect Sebastian. She pinned Henry with a look. Your highness, consider it a gesture to reassure your people that you do not consider yourself above the law. The prince opened his mouth, met Garrett's steel-blue gaze, and subsided with a curt, ungracious nod. Henry had always been the smarter of the two royal brothers. Garrett glanced at the duke. The look Richard gave her was startled admiration, and she kept her gaze on him because she couldn't stand to meet Henry's. After they had seen to the prince's comfort, which mostly involved feeding his highness and seeing him draw in a hot bath, 
Garrett found herself in the salon with Richard, relaxing on a velvet-covered couch and sipping brandy while his mastiff laid a head that weighed more than a stone upon her foot and side. Did anyone happen to collect my glove from the garden? I'll ask Seamus. He swirled crimson-scented liquor in his glass and leaned against the arm of the curved couch they shared. Will Don Sebastian come if we send a messenger? I don't see why not. He'll need a darkened room for day. I can't just lock him in the wine cellar. But Richard half-smiled, and Garrett's startled retort faded. She let the brandy roll over her tongue, savoring an almost creamy texture. Where's Jacqueline? The Duchess. Richard frowned. Spent the night at her brother's. I expect she'll be home before dinner. Richard's opinion was plain in his voice. You never told me you had an affair with the prince. I never told the prince I had an affair with you. When you have Sebastian in your clutches, my lord, will you see to it that the house burns down and be rid of them both? If only I could get away with it. But he smiled. Can you link the criminal to the crime? If we have them both in the house, can you eliminate them as suspects through sorcery? I can try, she said. It depends whether the assassin kept the device used to commit the murder far away from himself until it was needed and then discarded it, or if he kept it close. Perhaps if we can discover what became of the poor woman's blood. She shook her head. It wasn't Sebastian, Richard. For one thing, he came up the stairs behind me, and if he had gone down so close in advance, I would have seen him. He could have leapt from a balcony, if he's what you say. He could, but... A vampire wouldn't kill, if the mood took him. That's prejudice, Richard, and utterly unfair. Or is it just jealousy? I... He reached down and smoothed the dog's velvet ears, sipped his drink, fiddled with a stick pin she hadn't seen before. Yes, he said sharply. Would you rather I didn't care? Something wild flared in her breast. Sebastian, she said with utter clarity, doesn't need to take. Her words seemed to hang between them for an hour. Richard stared into the depths of his glass and spoke very slowly, as if he had not heard her at all. We have to, Abby Irene. We have to prove the prince's innocence. If there is any doubt, any shade of doubt... He left the thought unfinished. The Lord Mayor will turn it into another article in his endless list of reasons the colonies must secede from the Empire and throw ourselves on the mercy of the silk-fisted French. Not just neglect, taxation, King Philip's desire to build his empire eastward. Not just neglect, but malevolence. She stood and finished her drink, gently extricating her foot from under the dog. Send the message to Sebastian now. His servants will see that he gets it. Send another servant for a scrap of Cecilia Elliott's dress. I'll need it tonight, when I check on the prince. Or the prisoner, if you prefer. As you wish, Richard said, his foot flipping restlessly. He set his own glass aside, fingers lingering on the mouth-blown glass. She shivered in an almost physical recollection. You should rest beforehand, Abby Irene. Where is Mr. Nazar Halquadal sleeping? The ambassador. He's got rooms on the fourth floor, east wing, near the prince's suite. I need to speak to his highness before I rest. I need some items from him. I'll take the south guest bedroom after, the green one. Down the hall from Richard's room, connected by a side door to the third floor library, a pair of 300-year-old elms screened the windows. Richard cocked his head at an angle and arched his eyebrow at her, a silent question. Garrett forced one narrow smile before she left. Richard left her before tea time, brushing the emerald necklace aside to plant a final lingering kiss on her sorcerer's tattoo. 
Garrett stretched against the velvet coverlet on the canopied bed and closed her eyes just for a moment as the door to the library closed behind him. When she opened them again, the sky blazed crimson through sheer cream-laced curtains, and she swore. She had wanted to speak to Henry before Sebastian arrived. She rose and dressed quickly, wincing as she yanked a comb through unfashionably short hair, and turned back just as she was leaving to snatch up her dark velvet sorcerer's carpet bag and the envelope with the scrap of dress in it. She took the servant's stare because it was faster and scandalized a chambermaid in the process, but arrived at Henry's suite before the red sun dipped under the horizon. She knocked, and the prince in his dressing gown opened the carved door so quickly he must have been waiting. She had thought that Richard's touch fresh on her skin would make it easier. She looked into Henry's smile and cursed herself for a fool. You're too old for lovesick, Abby Irene. Ready for the spell, your highness? Of course. He shut the door behind her and locked it came to her and laced his fingers through her hair tight enough to hurt when she stepped away, almost as much as stepping away from the warm smell of musk and lemon peel that surrounded him hurt. She did it anyway. Henry. I adored you. He said. It's not beyond Philip to have you killed if you become an embarrassment, you know. Is that treason, Lady Abigail Irene? It's fact, she said coldly. She turned up a gas lamp and lit a candle from her bag, an old one, transparent wax lumpy with bits of shattered quartz and pungent with rosemary needles. She set it on the cherrywood dresser and looked up at him. Did you get what I asked you for, your highness? Wordlessly, he handed her a snippet of thick white linen. She recognized it, a bit of the hem of the shirt he had worn to the ball. She drew a silver spoon and an ordinary nail scissors from her carpet bag and clipped a corner of the blue dress fabric, rested both in the spoon, and held it over the candle flame. Don't you need to cast a circle? The smoke must move freely, she answered. She looked up at him. The rising moon cast a copper light through the eastern window, a little less full than the night before. It touched Henry's cheek with color as it had Sebastian's. Let's watch. Garrett knew the smoke would rise in two distinct streams, parted by still, unbreakable air, and drift about the room aimlessly as a bored kitten. The inverse principle of similarity would make the two smokes irreconcilable, unless the nature of the two fabrics, manufactured half a world apart, had been fused into a single whole by some act of violence. The streams rose pure and red-lit by the rising moon, conjoined as if they were one thing. As they were... Garrett dropped the spoon into the candle, snuffing the flame. She snapped a glance over her shoulder at Henry, but the prince simply watched her, a frown drawing the corners of his mouth down. "'What have you done?' she whispered. "'Nothing,' he said, waving a hand to disperse the stream of smoke that coiled around his throat like a noose. "'This... this is some trick. Nothing. Tell me you believe me. Have I ever lied to you?' She shook her head and blew the smoke away. You never have, she said, and when the pooled wax had hardened, she swept her tools into her bag. You should dress for dinner, your highness. We'll have guests. The tension at the long table all but soured the meat and wine, glittering off the silver and crystal like the gaslight from the chandeliers. Sebastian had arrived with a wry smile on his face and a fresh rose in his buttonhole fifteen minutes before service. He sat on Garrett's left, and flaked his fish aimlessly across his plate with a heavy silver fork. She drew a great and secret amusement from watching the cleverness with which he pretended to dine. He'd very nearly fooled her when they met. The wampir caught her looking and presented her with the thin edge of a smile. 
He swirled his wine in the glass and touched it to his lips, inhaling the aroma. Garrett found she didn't have much appetite either, sitting among guarded men with Michel Neza Hocottle making polite forays into conversation. Sebastian had barely set the glass down when the Aztec ambassador leaned forward. What brings you to the Americas, Don Sebastian? You are Spanish, of course. Neza Hocottle left the thought unfinished. The British alliance with the Aztec Empire dated from a time when both great powers found themselves with a common enemy, the then even greater power of Spain. I would have thought you'd go to the great trade city of San Diego, if you wish to explore the new world. San Diego is lovely, Sebastian said, laying his fork aside and letting his left eye drift close in a smiling wink. But I prefer a cooler climate for my exile. No one comes to America for the climate. Garrett watched Richard's face as she said it. He smiled faintly. He'd been born in New Amsterdam, made his fortune by twenty-one in the service of the Iron Queen, and married the old duke's daughter and heir so he could protect the city and the colony he cherished. Some come to New Amsterdam to escape the consequences of previous actions, Henry commented without looking up from his food. But I think most come out of, well, I won't call it cowardice. Perhaps it would be better to say a desire to start anew. I suspect most of those merely wind up making the same mistakes over again. A man faces up to his errors and fixes what he can. Garrett felt the pressure of Henry's eyes on her, his anger and his desire, and smelled the smoke of scorching cloth. The anger she thought she should feel paled under white scorn at his cruelty and her unease at the message in the smoke. You broke his heart, Abby Irene, and he's angry. But what reason would he have to kill Cecilia? It only hurts the crown. Now, if it were the Lord Mayor, perhaps this was an attempt to frame Sebastian? She saw Sebastian formulating a rejoinder, more incensed on her behalf than his own, and interceded casually. It's a better exile than some. There are many forms of exile, Nezahokadl said. The Aztecs seem to eat with good appetite. It's hard being kept from your home. A self-deprecating smile touched the corners of his strange light eyes, and then he glanced at Henry. But not too onerous. One finds good friends wherever one travels. The sound of footsteps in the hall silenced him. Richard half stood from his chair, moving to place his body between the prince and the door. Garrett pushed her chair back a half step behind Sebastian, who moved like oil on water when he wanted to, and slipped her silver-tipped ebony wand from her pocket as she came up beside the duke. She relaxed only incrementally when she realized that the figures framed in the archway were the blonde, reserved duchess and the widowed Lord Mayor. Were they having an affair? She wondered. But they stood an unmeasured distance apart, and no awareness flowed between their bodies. No. Could Elliot be behind the murder? He wouldn't be the first husband to sorcerously do away with his wife, and she knew he'd hired a black mage not twelve months earlier to weaken Richard's political position and to try to kill Garrett herself, although Garrett had been unable to prove it. My lord husband, Jacqueline began. She stepped into the dining room, gaslight glittering on her earrings and playing over the fine silk of her dress. I happened upon the Lord Mayor in the drive as he was arriving. Shall we invite him to dine? Her eyes measured Garrett for a coffin as she spoke. The offer is kind, Elliot interjected before Richard could answer. But I won't sit at table with a killer. I suppose you've made no progress in your investigations, Detective Crown Investigator. His expression shook Garrett's cool assessment of the man as a bastard. 
There was pleading in it. Richard stepped halfway in front of her, and she bit back a snarl, but Sebastian laid a steadying hand on her elbow and moved aside, drawing her from behind the Duke's fair-haired bulk. The Crown investigator, Richard said, is making every effort to bring the case to a speedy resolution. Richard, Jacqueline began. He tried to silence her with a glare. She raised her chin and stepped forward. It is his wife, Elliot said simultaneously, stepping past Jacqueline and striding forward to confront Richard nose to nose. In loyal service to the crown. Garrett heard the scrape of a chair as Henry stood. She didn't look. That's sedition, Richard said softly. It's a fact. Elliot turned his head and spat. Arrest the prince, Richard. Prove once and for all you care for something other than your ducal seat. Did you care for the colonies, for New Amsterdam? He turned his head and stared Garrett in the face. DCI, do you know who killed my wife? Richard moved to put himself between them again. He walked into Sebastian, who had coolly set himself for the block. Garrett pushed forward and laid her hand on the Lord Mayor's arm. She looked over his shoulder, caught a complex expression on the Duchess's face. When I have conclusive evidence... You have conclusive evidence, Abigail Irene. Lord Peter, you will know what I know. He stared her in the eye for a long, sharp-edged second before he turned and strode away. Garrett wasn't quite certain how Sebastian spirited her away from the dining room. She remembered his hand on her arm, quick footsteps, and the eventual pause, breathless, under a rising moon that painted the gravel garden path under their feet in knife-like shadows. Don Sebastian, I am in your debt again, Garrett said, leaning into the shadows of a towering forsythia, frightening crawling shivers. I think we're past the point of friendship where we need to keep accounts. Was Richard always such a pig? She laughed, winding her arms around her body. He's jealous. And a patriot, he sets no loyalty before the crown. I think he sees that you are not jealous, and to him it sees another bit of evidence that you are heartless and cold. I learned that it was foolish to try to possess things. Sebastian shrugged and put his arm around her, for all he had no warmth to share. Or women. A thoughtful pause. What sort of a life could I offer? Is it Prince Henry, Abby Irene? I cannot deduce another answer, and I cannot understand why he would do such a thing. She leaned back against his shoulder and watched the rising moon dye the facade of the Duke's manor the color of skimmed milk. She shook her head, her hair moving against his jacket, the rose in his lapel brushing her ear. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium? You realize if they had listened to the women, Troy would still be standing? Helen tried to warn them, and Cassandra too. After she was cursed for spurning Apollo, and yet she and Helen take the blame. The scent of the Forsythia hung over them now, raw and sweet, less flower than vegetable. The moon rose another finger's width, wanning from full, shaped like a sail bellying in the rising wind. Don't the years grow long alone, Sebastian? Look, he pointed. You can see the rabbit in the moon. Did you bring me a bit of the shirt you wore last night? I did. And he held her strong hand in his cold one as they walked with measured paces back inside. I'll ask Duchess Jacqueline if I may have the room beside yours, if that suits you. I somehow do not think she will mind. Smoke rose by smoke, two streams plainly divided in the dappled moonlight that made its way through the branches of those ancient elms. 
Garrett closed her eyes and leaned back against the wall beside the locked door to the library, breathing a sigh. Exactly as it should be. The vampire was innocent. She laid the silver spoon in an ashtray and snuffed the candle out with licked fingertips just a moment before a light tap rattled her door. The hall door. She'd been prepared to ignore a furtive tap on the other, having little patience for Richard tonight if he was fool enough to come to her under the same roof as his wife. Garrett padded to the door barefoot and slid the bolt back, letting the door drift open on well-oiled hinges. She was unsurprised that Henry stood revealed beyond. I apologize, he said, as he brushed by her, pulling the knob from her hand and swinging it silently closed. She noticed with annoyance that he turned the key in the lock. I was boorish at dinner. I don't know what possessed me, and I hope, I hope you can forgive me. Garrett stepped to the side and began putting the tools of her sorcery away. No apology is needed. Thank you for the necklace, Henry. It's lovely. Necklace? His voice was tight and heavy as if he wept. The floor creaked behind her. Garrett whirled, carpet burning the naked ball of her foot, and grabbed for the wand in her open bag, not fast enough. His hands, those strong, tapered fingers, reached for her throat, lengthening as she watched, strange, hollow-pointed claws curving from the nail beds in a welter of puckered flesh. Garrett shouted at the top of her lungs. Henry's eyes shone blankly glossy, glazed by the moonlight. Talons pricked her skin, and she heard, as though through cotton wool, the sound of someone pounding on the heavy ancient door. She drew abreast the scream, but alien, dagger-tipped, not the hands she remembered so well. His hands closed on her throat, and he pressed her back against the bureau, still littered with her instruments of sorcery. Garrett reached out right-handed and tore the emerald out of his ear. Henry jerked away with a cry, blood racing over suddenly human hands as he clasped them to ripped flesh. One more resonant thump, the lock plate shattered with a splintering crash. Sebastian and Richard burst through the door. They halted at the specter of blood and moonlight, at Garrett tearing her gown open and ripping the emerald necklace from her throat as Henry swayed and went to his knees. Richard, your stick pin! She pointed at his collar, and he flung the jewelry away like a serpent discovered in a pocket. Abby, Irene. Sebastian started. It's the ambassador, she said. Henry looked up at her, the sanguinary flow still staining his hands and his shoulder. Sebastian turned, Richard half a step behind him. No. A voice accustomed to obedience, and both men froze in the doorway as Henry forced himself to his feet. A slow drip ebbed down his jacket. He didn't seem to notice. I'll handle this. Garrett supported herself against the dresser. Sebastian and the Duke stepped aside, but turned to follow as the prince pushed through the shattered door and stomped out of sight. Silence ensued for some minutes, and Garrett found the strength to go and sit herself on the bed. She wondered when a servant would be along, or worse, Duchess Jacqueline. Some time later, Sebastian stepped in from the hallway and reported, He kicked the door in. Oh, Henry followed no more than ninety seconds later, Richard at his side. He held something clenched in his fist like a shed snakeskin, and he held it out to Garrett like a man offering his best hound the fox's tail. Good love, my lady. Garrett took the limp, blood-stained thing and dropped it on the floor between them. He needed a binding, the emerald to limit it, to bind you and identify the target. Some personal item to trigger. He must have done the same in London. I left before the killing. Did you? I... 
Henry pushed blood-stained fingers through his hair. Yes, I don't, I don't remember. But how could I not remember? His arm dropped to his side, as if his own touch disgusted him. Garrett moved away from the dresser into the center of the room. He said his mother was white. French. A concubine to the Aztec emperor. She died, the same pox that scarred him as a boy. When the Aztec court came to England, when we were both boys... The prince had too much courage to turn away. I taught him English. We were friends. The emperor found uses for him, I take it. But they didn't suit his ambitions? Or maybe his taste for revenge... Richard shrugged. Bastards and second sons. Irony dripped from Henry's tongue. Make good ambassadors. We can't let anyone know we used you for his scheme, Highness. You've no guilt in this thing. The Duke coughed into his hand. Garrett studied Richard's face, and Henry's, and the Wampir's, though Sebastian stood silent by the door. Henry swallowed and looked down at his hands. I can't lie about this, Richard. You're asking him to conceal evidence of a murder. Garrett was surprised at her own voice, level and disbelieving. It could mean the revolt of the colonies if you don't. The end of our alliance with the Aztecs. This is the Emperor's bastard son. Everything the French could have wanted. Henry looked at Garrett, his deep-set eyes glistening, stricken in the bluing moonlight. Garrett looked away. She knew what he wanted her to say. She touched her throat felt the torn edge of her dress. I serve the crown, she whispered. She pushed away from the dresser, stepped past Henry, past Richard, towards the door. She stopped, glanced over her shoulder. I have to confess this, Henry said, drawing himself up. A harsh scent of burned cloth and blood tainted the air, overwhelming the scent of oranges. It will mean lives if you do, your highness. She didn't need to look at Henry to know his lips pursed and struggle. Didn't need to look at Richard to see him drop his eyes to the floor. Mine, perhaps. The Duke's. Maybe even your own. It will mean war. And it will mean only your honor if you don't. I know. His hands flexed helplessly, stretched and clenched. What would you have me do, Abby Irene? What would you say of all this? I will do as my king bids me do, she said. And then she stood and watched the moonlight move up upon the wall and waited for them to argue. Don Sebastian never moved from his place beside the door. Sebastian, she said sometime later. Sebastian, take me home. And welcome back. Like Anna, I do love me a good alternate history with some crazy world building. And like Anna, I'm pretty particular. After reading this story, I felt like yet another of Abby Irene's lovers. So sad a good thing was over and just had to figure out how to get back into her good graces. Luckily, Elizabeth Bear's written a lot of other New Amsterdam stories, including The Collection New Amsterdam, The White City, and Seven First Secret. So, maybe I'll get another chance yet. And as Johnny Depp said, playing another constable in some other weird alternate history, where Ichabod Crane was somehow a police detective, I do believe she's a witch, because she's bewitched me. Feedback this week is for Samantha Henderson's Outlander, read by Graham Dunlop. 
This was the story about a barbarian kid from the wrong side of the kingdom, his upper-class best friend, and his best friend's sister. Generally, people on the forums enjoyed it. Olivia said, It was obvious from the beginning where the story was going, but like Game of Thrones, it was great to hear it played out pitch-perfect. I've grown fond of depictions of the quote, nice bigot, unquote, the affable chap who nurtures all kinds of horrible prejudices beneath a veneer of polite open-mindedness. I think it's a characterization that resonates with a wide portion of modern liberal society and challenges us to look at ourselves, if we dare, for similar, but my sister, reactions. And Li Shalin said, I suspected what was going on, but I had to learn how the duel came out, too. The lovers reminded me of Elizabeth and Darcy, but under their cool appearance, they had already reached an agreement. Clever. There was also a good bit of discussion on whether or not the predictability of the plot hindered or added to the enjoyment, and also some discussion about Firefly, because, <laughs> you know, in geek culture, all things sooner or later come back around to Firefly. How about a no prize for the first person who can tie it into this week's episode? Well, thank you all very much for those comments. We love hearing what you thought of our stories. Feel free to join the party over at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. Just remember, no dark magic or our detective crown sorcerer and sorceress mods will put a wicked spell on you. You know, I've noticed they're both up pretty late at nights, but I've never wondered until now whether Talia or Aussie Cat might be vampires. Huh. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors so we can bring you the best in fantasy week after week. And if you can't afford to donate, that's okay. So long as you consider tweeting, blogging, Facebooking, telling a friend, or writing a review on iTunes about us. Amusingly, one of the recent reviews on iTunes complained about how we'd recently switched our focus from sword and sorcery to stories from women's POV, among other things. Which, you know, makes me wonder what they thought of this week's episode. Anyway, that was our show for this week, and on behalf of Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwinden, and myself, I want to thank you all for tuning in and letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time with the tale of family and brotherhood from Peter S. Beagle. Until then, long live the Queen. We'll see you next week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Raymond Chandler said, Police business is a hell of a problem. It's a good deal like politics. It asks for the highest type of men, and there's nothing in it to attract the highest type of men. So we have to work with what we get.